it's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Welcome back. This is Aaron Wren. Continue our series on Urban World, Urban Church. Last time I kicked off the series by talking about the global uh, trends in urbanization, mostly affecting the developing world. Today I want to talk more about the developed world, uh, really specifically the United States, but a lot of the similar dynamics apply elsewhere. And I'm going to start getting into the urban church itself, and but really in the following episodes is where we're really going to start digging in to some aspects of that. Now, as I said last time, the United States has long been a fully urbanized country. We were, we were about 80% urban today, according to the Census Bureau, in terms of our population. We like to distinguish between urban and suburban, but again, suburban is really just an automobile form of urbanization. They're really the same thing. And we actually had 50% urban way back in 1920, something that the globe just basically hit very, very recently. But we have sort of gone through a, a similar, you know, maybe analogous process to global urbanization, which is uh, really the decline, fall, and then, you know, rebirth of a lot of American cities. And if in the era following World War II, as suburbanization hit, uh, we we saw a, a significant period of decline in established uh, American uh, cities. Uh, we saw this most particularly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, the 80s were, or 70s and 80s, it was a really bleak time for cities. Seattle was in such bad shape. Uh, somebody uh, put up a billboard that's still kind of famous today. Will the last one leaving Seattle please turn out the lights? New York famously almost uh, went bankrupt in the 1970s. Uh, the New York Daily News had a, a famous cover story, Ford to City Drop Dead, as in Gerald Ford, the president, who said he refused to bail out the city, although he actually did bail them out eventually. Um, you know, think about films like Escape from New York in 1981, in which New York is a futuristic city uh, that has been turned into essentially a gigantic prison. Uh, it's been abandoned by people. It is now just a prison. Or if you go back and re watch the original Dirty Harry movie uh, from, I think, 71 was the original Dirty Harry movie. It was set in San Francisco. And, you know, San Francisco was this sort of, you know, working class city, you know, obviously with some some serious crime and and murder issues. And, you know, there was really a, a lot of questions about whether American cities were simply going to fail, uh, go down the tubes completely. And then something happened really starting in the 80s. But uh, turning around in the 90s, cities really came back to the point that today, um, you know, a lot of urban areas are more prosperous than they've ever been. Until the coronavirus came along and punched New York City in the face, uh, it was 
you know, essentially at an all-time population high, just very slightly below it. It was an all-time job high. San Francisco's at an all-time population high. LA's an all-time population high. Places like, you know, uh, DC and uh, Philadelphia had rebounded from uh, decades of population loss and it started growing again. And the problems that we heard about in the city were essentially problems, uh, you know, around what you might call gentrification. Uh, you know, that it's now so expensive to live in the city, um, you know, hardly anyone c- could afford to be there. So places like New York, San Francisco, Boston, these, especially these coastal elite cities had become really the citadels of the modern economy and, uh, in many ways dominate a lot of the economic landscape and cultural landscape of our country. And how did this happen? You know, how did this revival of the city uh, come about? And it came about in a couple of ways. One of them was actually the rise of globalization. And globalization allowed, um, you, you know, all the uh, factories to be shipped uh, to wherever. It allowed the IT to be offshored, uh, the customer service to be offshored. But a global enterprise is much more complex to manage than a purely domestic one. And as a result, there was a lot of need for fancy currency transactions and international law, international accounting, things like that. And the people who are capable of handling these types of global services were really located in a handful of cities that became known as global cities. Uh, The leading academic theorist of global cities uh, was a sociologist named Saskia Sassen. She actually wrote a book called The Global City, And in this book, she acknowledges the link between the decline of manufacturing and what you might call the decline of the hinterland and the rise of the coastal elite cities. She wrote in the second edition of that of of her book, she said, the globalization of manufacturing activity and of key service industries has been a crucial factor in the growth of the new industrial complex dominated by finance and producer services. Yes, manufacturing matters. From the perspective of finance and producer services, however, it does not have to be national. And one of the key points in this book is that much of the new growth rests on the decline of what were once significant sectors of the national economy, notably key branches of manufacturing that were the leading force in the national economy and promoted the formation and expansion of the strong middle class. And I think this is really important because it shows something that I think is very characteristic of this recovery uh, of these cities in that the success of many of these cities is very directly linked to the decline of other places. So why is so much of America, especially these manufacturing centers, go into decline? Uh, It's because of these policies that disadvantaged and disfavored them and really favored uh, these global cities. Another one of these policies was deregulation. You know, there used to be tremendous limits on concentrations of businesses. Banking, for example, uh, in America was very fragmented. Up until the 1980s, um, you really was illegal for banks, banks to open very many branches. Some states like Illinois, banks couldn't have branches at all. Uh, you know, in, in Indiana, where I'm from, banks could not open branches outside of their home counties. And there were a ton of rules that kept banks from buying other banks. And also there were there were, uh, rules, you may have heard of an old rule called Glass-Steagall, that prohibited commercial banks, like the ones you have your checking account with, 
uh, from engaging in the same lines of business as investment banks, like, say, Goldman Sachs that did stock underwritings and trading and the like. And basically, this entire regulatory complex was completely dismantled to the point that essentially all of the hometown banks in America were consolidated away and bought up into a largely a handful of gigantic integrated banking companies that dom- dominate finance today and which, you know, have heavily located in only select locales. So again, the decline and loss of many of your hometown enterprises, not just in finance, but in a whole slew of places, came about as a result of deliberate policies uh, to reduce uh, or to eliminate the regulations that previously prohibited industrial consolidation. And so what we see as a result of this is that the economy has heavily concentrated in a small number of places when it comes to the elite and highest value function. So about three-fourths of all the venture capital investment dollars in America, for example, goes into the Bay Area, New York City, Boston, and Los Angeles. And so that goes to show you, like tech, which is the sector driving the economy today, is hyper-concentrated in a limited number of of locations. Uh, So we see that these cities on the coast dominate key industries. So we see, for example, that New York dominates finance, media, culture. Uh, D.C. dominates government. Boston dominates biotechnology, L.A. entertainment. Uh, The Bay Area and Seattle, kind of the high-tech business, very concentrated there. Uh, and, you know, there's a few others like energy in Houston, uh, but these these big coastal cities really essentially dominate the play, the the industries that are generating so much of the economy today. So these are very, very prosperous places uh, in America for that reason. And so I don't want to necessarily try to stoke too much resentment against them. But what has been good for those cities has not necessarily been good for you. And so I think of about a policy like globalization, for example, a lot of people like to portray globalization as some irresistible force that just happened. But in fact, globalization is something that was very self-consciously promoted and implemented through, for example, NAFTA, through the Uruguay round of trade talks that created the World Trade Organization by allowing China to join the WTO and opening our markets to them. So this has been something that's been promoted actively for a very long time, and it benefited certain groups of people, and it harmed other groups of people. And no surprise, the people that it benefited the most uh, are the ones that have you know, had the most influence in, in our economy. So a lot of the challenges are really um, related to that in, in, the, in the country. And... Um, and, and it's the, so this, there, these places are important. I think that's the most important thing to understand about that. These places are important because they represent the commanding heights, if you will, uh, of the economy. A second reason that they're very important is that these cities are where the culture of America is determined, uh, it, where it is made. In James Davison Hunter, the uh, University of Virginia sociologist, he wrote a book called to change the world that talked about how culture gets made. And um, I'm going to read not from that book, but from a speech he gave several years before it that, that I think was ultimately turned into that book. And he said this, with culture, there is a center and a peripherally, the periphery. The individuals, networks, and institutions most critically involved in the production of a culture or civilization operate in the center, where prestige is the highest not on the periphery where status is low. Long-term cultural change always occurs from the top down. 
In other words, the work of world changing is the work of elites, gatekeepers who provide creative direction and management to the leading institutions in society. The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Awakenings, the Enlightenment, the triumph of capitalism over mercantilism and feudalism, all of the democratic revolutions in the West, the rise and triumph of science in our own day, the triumph of the therapeutic postmodernism in law, architecture, literature, and popular culture, and now globalization itself, all began among elites and then percolated into the larger society. And so what we see is if you want to understand who really controls the culture in America, you have to look at elite institutions. And these elite institutions are predominantly located in those same cultural coastal elite cities. So think about the New York Times and the media, again, being in New York and D.C. You can think about, uh, you know, a university like Harvard uh, or MIT being in Boston um, San Francisco, obviously, in the counterculture there, had so much to do in, in shaping America. So the forces that really shape American culture and shape the American economy are located in in these big cities. Um, again, just to, to link the, the culture production elite institutions with the economy, uh, it's interesting, 40% of all the venture capitalists in the country went to either Harvard or Stanford. Right. So two schools account for 40 percent of all the VC uh, investors in the country. And so that shows you the, the extent to which elite institutions and elite concentrations, uh, many of whom behave in very self-interested ways, I might add, um, really uh, dominate and dominate from a limited number of locations. And so from the standpoint of a church, um, a couple things I would say, uh, uh, you know, are the implications one, as essentially educated people started moving back into urban centers, uh, which you see, uh, again, you can see it in, reflected in the, in the, in the uh, popular culture with shows like Friends, uh, for example, uh, or, or like Frasier, uh, which I believe was set in Seattle. Very, very different from, uh, you know, Death Wish movies from the 70s, let's just say, that portrayed a kind of a dystopian horror. The cities were fun. And so, you had this population of educated elites who are heavily, uh, you know, dominating of our society, and we see that they're going into these urban locations, uh, and these urban locations are becoming very strong. And so the church actually has to have a presence um, in, in these places. Do you just want to seed the locations and the people uh, who? Uh, are controlling our economy and who are controlling our culture, do you just want to essentially give up on reaching them with the gospel or having any sort of a Christian presence or Christian influence in what happens there? Again, you know, you could say that, you know, you may be in, you know, Colorado Springs or one of the other centers of, of Christian culture and think that you're you're influential within Christian culture, and that may be true, but it's not making an impact on the larger culture. And so that's why it is important, I would argue, that Christianity has to be present in these places uh, where culture is being made, where the economy is being shaped. And a place like, uh, you know, New York or San Francisco is that today in the same way that, say, Rome uh, or Ephesus uh, might have been back back in other times. And so you, you do want to be there. I think the second thing that, that's important about the church is the cultural pressures that are being brought to bear on the church in New York, let's just say, are a, provide a preview of coming attractions for what is going to be happening to you, you know, in suburban Atlanta, let's say, somewhere down the line. 
So things just happen sooner in the city. So I think a lot of these, you know, call a, you know, call them a hinterland Christians, if you will. And I, you know, I'm in that category today, living in Indiana. Uh, look at these, you know, people in the city like Tim Keller. They say, well, he's sold out. You know, he's the, they're just sellouts. They're capitulating to the culture. Uh, but the fact of the matter is what the people in, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, D.C., Boston and New York uh, or in L.A. are experiencing in terms of culture is not what you are experiencing. The closer you are to the center, the more intense the cultural pressures and new cultural pressures, new cultural changes to which you may be completely unaware that these things are even going on. And I like to use the example of, of the Stonewall riots in 1969 in New York, which launched the gay rights movement in the United States. You know, who, who in Iowa even knew that was going on uh, when it happened? And yet, you know, 40 years on, that had completely transformed the culture of America. And so there's things happening in these big cities right now. Even some of the people who live there might not even know them because a lot of times they happen, uh, you know, in underground kind of communities or what 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 you think of as underground um, they're really kind of uh, central they're central communities in some respects but doesn't mean that doesn't mean everyone there knows about them these types of, of cultural things that are coming uh, are really going to affect the rest of the country so if you want to understand how to respond to uh, tomorrow's world today uh, you sort of need to have boots on the ground in the places where tomorrow's culture is being shaped and that is you know, a place like New York. So I think that the pitch that a lot of these guys make, and, you know, believe me, I've helped them make it. I've helped multiple churches in New York raise money. So I actually do believe this is you need to have a Christian presence in these elite sectors of the economy, in these elite sectors of culture, in the places where, uh, you know, the economy and culture are, are being driven and controlled. And you need to be present kind of uh, in, in, in the place where the vanguard is, is, uh, occurring so that you are able to figure out how to respond and adapt to it. Doesn't mean the church always adapts well by any means. Uh, but even if they don't, you know, people who are not there get the opportunity to learn what not to do, let's say. The flip side of that, and I think something that is really going to, um, be maybe the, the overarching theme that comes across as I really start diving into what these urban church people believe and how they behave is that when you are in the center, um, that you can, you can become very much, uh, think that you are where it's at, that you are the most important person. Uh, and in fact, the next episode uh, of the podcast, I've tentatively titled the theology of pride, uh, because I think in general, much of what goes on in the urban church is essentially, uh, self-congratulatory, and designed to essentially puff up the egos, you know, of the of the people who are there. And uh, again, just as globalization, people talk all about globalization in terms of economic growth, lifting people around the poverty in the world and all these things. Uh, but in effect, um, these were very, very self-interested policies driven by the elite who profited enormously from them. And, and so uh, you know, I do think it's very easy to to fall into that trap of, you know, believing that you are, in essence, the indispensable man. So uh, next uh, next week or a couple weeks from now, we will dive right into that and start talking about how this presence at the center has affected how the church does business there. Until then, thanks for listening.